Welcome back to Safe Space Radio for Courageous Conversations. Today is the second in our series about child abuse. Last week, I spoke with Dr. Vincent Felitti about the links that he and his colleagues discovered between obesity and child abuse. Much to their surprise, they learned from the patients themselves that obesity was in fact a solution to certain problems, that obesity helped people feel safer from unwanted sexual interest, or that obesity helped people feel safer because they were bigger in the world, or that eating in itself kind of had a psychologically comforting function. And so they radically redesigned the treatment of obesity based on what they learned about the links between childhood abuse and that very vulnerability and discomfort with sexual interest. Today, we're going to take that story further to looking much more broadly at both how common child abuse is and what both the physical and mental health long-term consequences of these early painful childhood experiences can be. Dr. Vincent Felitti is an internist who founded the Department of Preventative Medicine at Kaiser Permanente in San Diego, where he's worked since 1968. He is clinical professor of medicine at the University of California, and he worked with colleagues at the Center of Disease Control to design a study of over 17,000 individuals to look at the long-term impact of adverse childhood experiences, what we call ACEs. Welcome back to Safe Space, Dr. Felitti. Thank you. So last week's interview, you told me this incredibly compelling story of the discovery of how profoundly common childhood sexual abuse was among people with obesity, to the tune of 55% of people who enrolled in your program. I'd love for you to tell me the story now of how you took this discovery about the prevalence of childhood sexual abuse and its link to physical health and obesity. What happened next once you knew that much? Well... In 1990, what we were doing in the WAIT program had attracted some attention around the country, and I was asked to present our findings at a national obesity meeting in Atlanta, Georgia, and um, I did. I had 286 cases that we had studied quite carefully. So there was a dinner for speakers afterwards, and and, um, I was seated next to somebody from the CDC, And he says to me, look, you know, if what you're saying is true, it's enormously important for the country as well as the practice of medicine, but nobody's going to believe your 286 cases, no matter how well you've studied them. We need a large epidemiologically sound study with thousands of people and from a general population, not some subgroup like a weight program. Okay, well, you know, we, we had a setting where we could do that pretty easily. Uh, The department that I had in San Diego was seeing 58,000 people a year for comprehensive medical evaluation. So we decided that we would ask 26,000 adults, middle-class adults, average age 57, 80% white, including Hispanic, 10% black, 10% Asian, 74% had been to college, etc., So, in other words, a very representative sample. It's kind of middle-class standard sample. Absolutely. Everybody with, you know, high-end medical insurance and so on. So we would ask 26,000 consecutive of these individuals if they'd help us understand more uh, about how life experiences in childhood might affect adult health and well-being many decades later. 
and 71% agreed, and so we had a population sample of 17,500 people uh, who were participating in the A study. So initially, we matched what we found in terms of how they were doing in life, what their physical condition and health was like, et cetera, against what had happened to them roughly a half century earlier. And then we've been following those people forward in time uh, for the past 18 years. What we found in these 17,500 people, very much like you and me, uh, was that the prevalence of these adverse life experiences in childhood was quite unexpectedly high, overwhelmingly unrecognized, partly because they're lost in time and partly because they're protected by shame and by secrecy and by social taboos against routinely exploring certain realms of human experience. And then we saw that their effect a half century later on average was powerfully and proportionately related to the number of categories, not not events, but categories of adverse life experience in childhood. And we studied 10 categories. I should mention them. Yes, why don't you? Yeah, heavy-duty physical abuse. I don't mean spanking. I'm talking serious beating with fists, sticks, objects, etc. Heavy-duty emotional abuse, basically recurrent humiliation. I mean, I remember talking with a man about a month ago tells me that when he was a kid, his father used to line up him and his brothers and his one sister and tell him, you kids ought to just be taken outside and shot. And contact sexual abuse, not somebody flashing a kid, but contact sexual abuse. Then major emotional neglect, major physical neglect, and then five categories of markedly dysfunctional household, growing up in a house where mother was being beaten, growing up in a house where one of the members was chronically depressed, suicidal, or in the state hospital, growing up in a house where one of the members was imprisoned during your childhood or adolescence, growing up in a house where one of the members of the household was an alcoholic or a drug user, and growing up without both biological parents. So the A-score ranges from 0 to 10. The A-score refers to the number of different categories of adverse life experience, not the number of events. So if anything, we're probably understating things. In other words, if somebody has been molested 32 times by five different people over five years, that's simply one point for the category. The 10 categories, much to our surprise, turned out to be essentially co-equal in terms of destructiveness. The one that had a slight edge, you know, maybe by 10% being worse than the others, was emotional abuse. And what we're looking at there is the destruction of one's sense of self. You know, you grow up, I'm no good. And humiliation was the, yeah. was the tool for that, yeah. it sounds like. Mm. So that's really also fascinating, isn't it, that emotional abuse was ultimately worse than contact, sexual abuse. Worse than incest, et cetera, yes. And that these 10 categories, which we picked because they were so common in the weight program, these 10 categories end up having a profound and proportional effect on people's mental health, well-being, 
so-called health risks, how they work at the job, how they function in society or in prison, biomedical disease, and premature death a half century later. When you say biomedical disease, tell me more what you mean by that. Heart disease, diabetes, emphysema, liver disease, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, etc. So here we are. What you are saying is that childhood abuse can contribute significantly to the formation of medical illnesses. Yes, correct. And that you have a huge sample size that proves that, basically. I understand that the prevalence rates of these adverse childhood experiences were also much higher than you anticipated. Maybe you could tell me a little bit about that. Mind-boggling. In a general population, you know, not an obese population, in a general population, the prevalence of major physical abuse, and serious beating, not not spanking, um, was 28%. In that same general population, the prevalence of contact sexual abuse was 22%. I mean, this is, you know, massive surprise. So you, you got this data, you, you realized how prevalent it was, and then I understand that the study kept going prospectively because when that person came in, the doctor asked a follow-up question. I'd like to hear what was that question and what were the consequences of asking it? Yeah, that was very interesting because, I mean, this was a big department and we had we had 30 examiners and different people worked out different approaches, but probably the most common one was, I see on the questionnaire that you, know, you were the one who discovered your father's body when he hanged himself, you were molested as a kid, you were raped, etc. Can you tell me how that's affected you later in your life? And and that was probably the most common approach. Um, and the answers were minute, two minutes long, you know, sometimes associated with tears, often very helpful in terms of enabling you to better understand where you needed to move next in terms of doing something to help this person. And not, not only that, but it appeared that the asking was beneficial because after we were doing this for a couple of years, a data mining company came by and did this huge study for me of 125,000 patients who went through using the new questionnaire with the trauma-oriented questions in it. And to my absolute amazement, they demonstrated that the addition of trauma-oriented questions to an already very detailed biomedical questionnaire was associated in the next year with a 35% reduction of doctor office visits and an 11% reduction of ER visits. Now, of course, a cynic might say, well, maybe that's because they didn't want to go to the doctor's office because they didn't want to talk about it. How did you know that wasn't why? Absolutely. And a colleague of mine in Los Angeles said, well, it's obvious what you've done is you've so humiliated those people by forcing them to answer those questions, they're avoiding needed medical care. Okay, well, you know, it's possible. Uh, Of course, you know, one one might think, well, yeah, you could lie and just say no and be done with it that way. But more impressively, we had inadvertently addressed that a couple of years earlier. I had on site in the department a psychiatrist for six months. And uh, it it made life a lot easier for the staff because instead of proposing to some patient what we would 
call with, you know, later the terminology would be with a high A score. Um, instead of proposing referring them to psychiatry, they would say, well, you know, look, Dr. Shannon down the hall has had a lot of experience with this kind of problem. So when we're through, I'll get down and introduce you to him. I think he might be helpful. So Shannon leaves at the end of six months. Everybody's sorry to see him go. And I thought, you know, we ought to do something to memorialize that he's been here. So I wrote a letter to every patient that he saw, a nice hand-signed letter, asking if they would tell me whether they found that contact helpful. I'm deluged with responses. I mean, I couldn't believe the response rate. And everyone except one writes back that they really liked it. And I thought, damn, I didn't ask if you liked it. I asked if it was helpful. You know, we could have given $10 bills away and people might have liked that, but you have a hard time arguing that it was helpful. So, so I felt kind of frustrated. And then a friend of mine said, well, why don't you wait a year and count doctor office visits? So we did. And amazingly, in that group, doctor office visits fell off by 51%. So by an so, even higher amount, in other words. So, so what this was, a one-hour psychiatric interview by a really skilled interviewer was associated with a 51% reduction in doctor office visits, and everybody except one made it clear that they really liked it. So presumably the acknowledgement of the abuse literally helped improve their physical health. Exactly. I mean, you have written, I want to read to you a quote. You've written, adverse childhood experiences are the main determinant of the health and social well-being of the nation, mm -hmm. as well as of adult medical care costs, mm -hmm. which is a bold statement. Oh, yeah. In your ideal world, how would this knowledge that you have change the way that we practice medicine? Well, if you're asking how does that work, you know, what are the mechanisms that allow that to be true, they're threefold in our best understanding at the present time. One, through the creation of various coping mechanisms that people overeat to feel better, that people smoke to feel better. That's one category. Or, or drinking, you know, sit down, have a drink, relax. Or buying antidepressants on the street, you know, crystal meth. Each of them, while it has real short-term benefit, also has major long-term disadvantage. Yes. And what's the second category? The second category relates to the effects of chronic major unrelieved stress and their effect on the brain and how that affects A, one's immune system, and B, one's endocrine system. So that, for instance, and, and I can give you an example that you know, a fair number of listeners will have some experience with cortisone and, and you know, chemicals very close to it are very useful for treating certain conditions but also have major long-term side effects. Decalcification of one's bones, osteoporosis, suppression of one's immune system, making it far easier on the trivial end to catch cold, on the more serious end to break down with tuberculosis or other more severe infections, etc. So tell me a little bit about the endocrine impact. Is that what you mean by cortisol? Are you including both in the immune system? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so the major uh, endocrine impact goes through 
hyperstimulation by stress of one's part of a brain called the hypothalamus and then its effect on the pituitary gland and then its effect on one's adrenal glands. And the adrenal glands are where cortisone is produced in your body. And high levels of cortisone over very long periods of time from chronic major stress have all sorts of detrimental effects in the long term. And so let me ask you now about the third mechanism that childhood abuse the can affect. The third mechanism is really difficult to explain to an audience not familiar with this stuff in detail. It falls into the realm of what's called epigenetics. Epigenetics is a relatively new field, a very important and rapidly advancing field about environmental influences affecting whether genes are active or not active. So what we're saying is not that there's a mutation in the gene. What we're saying is that the gene gets turned on or turned off in a new way. Correct. Okay. You've mentioned that the higher someone's ACE score, which is sort of the, the greater the number of bad things that happened to them as a child, yes. the more likely that they have all these negative consequences. We've, we've talked a little bit about the health ones, but I wondered if you could just give me some picture of what you're really talking about, because I understand that having an elevated ACE score is correlated literally with a 51 times increased risk of suicide. That, that number just stopped me in my tracks. But I wonder if there's a, just give me kind of a picture of what you really mean by how high, a high A score can affect someone. Okay, well, you bring up a good example, um, suicide attempts. Um, an individual with an A score of six or higher has between 31 and 50 times a 3,100 to 5,000% increase in the likelihood of attempting suicide later in life than does an A-score zero individual. Another example, an A-score six or higher individual is 4,600% more likely to become an IV drug user at some point later in life than an A-score zero individual. And, and the epidemiologists and statisticians at the CDC told me that those are numbers the magnitude of which people in their field run into once in a career. You know, you think you read in the newspaper the latest cancer scare of the week, something increases the likelihood of prostate cancer by 30% in men, and everybody is all upset. I mean, here we're talking thousands of percent. So the, the take-home message for me listening to you is that, A, we, we need to work on preventing childhood abuse in the most powerful possible way yes. because the consequences of it are so much more devastating than we even think. Yes. So that's one take-home message. But the second one that I'm getting from you is that once the, this abuse has already happened and you now have a 55-year-old sitting in front of you in the office, that the acknowledgement of that abuse and the acceptance of it and the asking about it and the creating a place to talk about it, that that alone can have a huge impact on that person's actual physical health. A absolutely. And believe me, that was a big change of thinking for me. And I understand that there are people who have really had a hard time accepting that. Tell me about the resistance that you've encountered for it, because the, the science behind it is 
is pretty hard to argue with. I, you know, the sample size makes it, the, the statistical power is hard to dispute. So what is the resistance and how do you understand it? Well, the resistance is not so much to the concept. The ACE study has attracted a great deal of intellectual interest in the United States, Canada, and Northern Europe, and essentially no engagement in terms of using it. And the explanations are numerous. You know, oh, you can't ask patients questions like that. My God, they'll be furious and nobody will tell you the truth anyway. Or, you know, insurance doesn't cover it. Or there's no time. I don't have time to listen to somebody complaining for two hours, etc. Or you know, if I wanted to be a damn shrink, I'd have been a shrink. I'm an endocrinologist, etc. Um you know, and those things, if you're not familiar with the way things work, might, might sound superficially plausible. But, but in fact, they're not if one really wanted to use it. I mean, you know, we, we have used this now with 440,000 people over an eight-year period. That's not the ACE study. That's using the ACE study. And, um, you know, it worked well with tremendous advantage and has not spread anywhere because people, physicians, um, uh, are basically so uncomfortable dealing with this kind of information. I would like to ask you a more personal question, if I may, because it sounds like you, you know, your arrival at this understanding about the power of child abuse was really arrived at through your role as a doctor. But I'm imagining that you took the ACE study questionnaire yourself. And I'm curious to ask, did you did you learn anything more about your own childhood or your own health as a result of the work oh, you did? Oh, hugely. Um, you know, as a matter of fact, that probably was what, what prompted my background interest in this. Um, I, my father was a pediatrician, and I remember after the war, after World War II, um, he, he had purchased a book called The Neuroses that was authored by a very famous internist at the Mayo Clinic. And uh, yeah, I, was, I was a kid, but I, pro I probably read the book before he did because I was really desperate for trying to figure out what the hell is going wrong in this house. You know, I mean, we, we superficially seemed to have a marvelously nice house. And it was a you know, gorgeous building and so on. But um, we were three people in that house essentially the only contact between us, you know, I laugh now, was, believe me, not laughable, uh, was, was the fact that the dog would circulate amongst us. Um, it was, it was a, a remarkably isolating place to be. Um, and I think that probably had a major factor in, in developing my interest in the psychological aspects of, of medical practice. And would you say that acknowledging that the sort of the dearth of warmth, the dearth of emotional connection, would you say that that too was unrecognized or hard to talk about? Oh yeah, sure. And and how do you what made that hard to talk about? Well, probably the background issue of you know everyone more or less being taught that there are certain things that you don't talk about outside the house. You know, you don't, you don't hang your dirty laundry up for the neighbors to see, that kind of thing. A kind of family loyalty to not... not... Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
um, the other issue was probably sometimes being told, oh, you don't feel that way. That's not the way you feel. Well, I mean, you know. Yes. I was I was a kid. They were grown-ups. They presumably knew more. Maybe maybe that wasn't the way I felt, et cetera. So, so those things certainly fed in, and also the high regard that, that my mother and father were held by other people. Um, you know, who was I, a kid, to, to challenge that? So, yes. yeah, those those were things that all that all fit in. Part of what seems so powerful to me now, hearing you, is that you have managed to turn that the sensitivity that was born from that experience, in, you know, into a gift for others. Vincent. Yeah, well, it would have been nice <laughs> if if either I didn't have to do that, or it didn't take you know well more than half a century to to get it to to something useful to other people as well as to myself. I think that's such a humbling part of working as a psychiatrist, as a therapist, is that it, it sometimes really does take a very well, long time. You, you're reminding me that you know when I first went into practice, I wouldn't have wanted to go near any of this with a pole because I, I, I would have felt incompetent. I mean, you know, what am I going to do? You know, there's no prescription for this. There's no operation for this. There's no injection for this, etc. And it took so long to realize that that one didn't always need to do something. Indeed, that asking and listening and implicitly accepting a person as a meaningful human being, in spite of their experiences, was itself a very powerful form of doing. And so that's what I think really underlay the enormous drop in doctor office visits that occurred after we started routinely pursuing these issues with every single person who came through the department. So what I'm hearing you say is that asking about pain and listening to pain were perhaps one of the most powerful interventions you could make as a doctor. Yes, yes. And, and, and another example that helps with that there was a, an enormously capable internist at Stanford, um, a guy named Alan Barbour, who who did a little study in the in the chronic pain clinic at Stanford, 750 patients, and he he asked them what they wanted most out of the pain clinic, and amazingly, what they wanted most was not relief of pain. They did want that, but that was not number one. What they wanted most was an understanding of why they were hurting. I think that what, what people wanted was to have someone, an understanding person to whom they could tell the story of their pain. I'm reminded of a, of a letter I got from a patient um, years ago thanking me for asking the questions that we were asking in our questionnaire and she wrote, I feared I would die and no one would ever know what had happened to me. Thank goodness you asked and that you listened. Dr. Vincent Felitti, I want to thank you so much for the work that you're doing on behalf of children and the grown adults everywhere. 
Thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space. Well, my, my pleasure. I'm always delighted to be in Maine, even if it's on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> I want to just make a note that Dr. Vincent Kalidi will be coming to Maine on Friday, April 19th. If you are interested in learning more about the ACE study and about Dr. Felitti's work, please go to the website for the Maine Association of Psychiatric Physicians, and you can sign up there to come to the conference. It's an all-day conference on Friday, April 19th here in South Portland. Thank you again, Vincent. Yeah. This is Dr. Ann. I've been speaking to Dr. Vincent Felitti of Kaiser Permanente about the prevalence of child abuse and the consequences for physical and mental health. If you did not get a chance to listen to this whole interview and you would like to, or you'd like to send a link to it to a friend, please go to our website at safespaceradio.com. You can also subscribe there to get a weekly email with a link to that week's show. You can also download us from iTunes. You can like us on Facebook. My thanks to Jen Hodgson for mixing the sound, Maurice Leonard for the music, and Jim Russell for being my consultant. Coming up next is Speak Freely. <laughs>